Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. Okay, I don't know about anybody else. I know Sabrina and I have had endless discussions about diet. And everyone's been talking about this diet and that diet. And oh my God, this is quarantine. It's a great time to learn how to do a new diet and change your food. Well, one of the things that always comes up is veganism and these plant-based diets. So, Sabrina. Yes. Are we ready to learn? Yes, always ready to learn, Melissa. Okay, we have Rip Esselstyn, a formal firefighter and triathlete and American health activist and food writer. And Dr. David Katz, ready for this (laughs) mouthful, is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center and the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and the current president of the True Health Initiative, which is a non-profit. But to make it really simple... I watched Game Changers, and you are both in Game Changers. So explain what Game Changers is for people who have not seen it. Game Changers, it is a, it's a documentary that came out in October of 2019, and it really highlights the, the, um, the, search, for, the search for truth that a gentleman named James Wilkes, he's a former mixed martial artist expert, that he has... Um, and he literally goes across the, glo- the globe talking to elite level athletes, scientists, doctors. Um, and what he discovers is actually pretty shocking to him, which is, is that we as human beings, we don't need protein to be, to be manly, to be womanly, to be healthy, to be supremely uh, athletic. And in fact, it actually, in many cases, does more harm than benefit. But the, um, I think the story arc is, is beautifully, beautifully done. And um, there's a lot of big names behind this documentary, including, you know, James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jackie Chan, Novik Djokovic, uh, Chris Paul. Uh, and I think yeah, the, latest, the, latest, the latest stats that I've heard is that this is now the most watched documentary ever. And, and uh, Melissa, I may jump in. So, Rip, thank you. It, specifically, don't need to get your protein from animals, right? So you don't need to eat meat to be big and strong. We do need protein, but it can all come from plants. And, and so that's the revelation. Basically, the world's greatest athletes show up one after another in this movie, the strongest, the fastest, the most stamina running on entirely plant-based diets. And so that's really the revelation. And, you know, that, that's an important reboot for thinking in this country about diet because we, we were all raised thinking, right, you know, you you want to be like Gaston, right? You have to eat five dozen eggs to be big and strong. Men have to eat meat. You know, and none of that's true. So, and, and so putting these fantastic athletes on display and showing you can be the strongest, the fastest, have the most stamina and run entirely on the nutrients you get from a plant-exclusive diet, that's important. 
and this is sort of, this is the wheelhouse for both of you. So Dr. Capps, I've been curious about, now, first of all, I guess the first question is, is eating plant-based and being vegan the same thing? You know, not from my point of view. First of all, when, when you hear plant-based, it can mean one of several things. I think plant-based should mean any plant-predominant diet. And so, you know, a traditional Mediterranean diet is plant-based. It's not plant-exclusive. I think we ought to be precise with our language. So there are plant-exclusive diets. Those are the same as vegan. There are plant-predominant diets. Those are plant-based. They may not be fully vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, and so forth. But I think there's another important thing to note. Most of the people who use the term plant-based may be inclined to say whole food plant-based. And what they then mean is not just a plant predominant or plant exclusive diet, but a high quality one, real foods direct from nature. It's important to note, you could have a vegan diet of very low quality. You could eat nothing but jelly beans and Coca-Cola and it would be vegan, but it wouldn't be a good idea, right? So the emphasis well, really- is it is, it is <laughs> quarantine. Be, no, 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 yes, it is quarantine. <laughs> it, it's an even worse, and, and folks, listen to me. Not Melissa, it's an even worse idea during quarantine because it's not good for your immune system either. In any event, you, you really want to focus on the quality of the foods and an emphasis on sourcing them from plants. And so most people using plant-based mean that, but like any term, you know, to some extent interpretation is in the eyes of the beholder. I would say all high quality diets across a pretty wide spectrum can be plant predominant. Plant exclusive diets would be vegan diets. And if they're whole food plant exclusive, then that's really what people saying plant-based mean. But I think we have to clarify that. Rip, where do you fall on this? Because you've written books, you've really become the face for a lot of people of this lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I agree with, with David. I mean, um, I will say that, uh, um, you know, veganism is more of a kind of an ideology, I think. Um, you know, you're, you're really, you're, you're eating this way, I think traditionally more for uh, animal compassion reasons and not so much for health reasons. But as we're, you know, in 2020 and we have a climate emergency, we have, you know, close to 75% of this population that's overweight or obese. Uh, and with COVID-19, you look at 36 and a half, 37% of this population that's now considered obese. And 113%, you have a 113% greater chance of being hospitalized for COVID if you're obese, and then a 50% greater chance of dying if you're obese. So, I mean, I think COVID is really showing us uh, a lot of our pain points as a country, especially when it comes to health. Um, but to me, I love the term plant strong, right? I mean, we want to really lean into eating a whole food, plant-based diet. We want to be plant strong. It doesn't mean you have to be plant perfect. And as David alluded, this is really eating eating plants as close to grown as possible, minimally processed. So we know we're getting the complement of fats, carbohydrates, protein, and then all the micronutrients that don't have calories that are essential for us to take our health to the next level. We're talking about the vitamins, the minerals, the phytonutrients, the antioxidants, and the fiber that we're just now learning is so instrumental for our microbiome and our gut health. Just you're gonna to have to bear with me. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, define totally. define what is a whole food. Yeah. 
So a whole food is something that is close to grown as possible. So it is, it's an orange, it's an apple. It is, uh, it's, it's okay, okay, it's an orange, not orange juice. It's brown rice, not white rice. It is kale, not kale chips. Oh, uh, dang, I love kale yeah. chips. <laughs> they yeah, always feel yeah. like a good substitute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it is uh, 100% whole grain bread instead, instead of white bread. It's doing fruits that come with fiber and all the vitamins and minerals as opposed to white sugar, brown sugar, molasses, you know, the, these, these added sugars. Um, so it's, it's more, I mean, it's just more like real food as opposed to processed, processed food. Dr. Uh, Katz, question for you. So with the plant-based diets, is there a scientific evidence that shows it's a healthier lifestyle? Absolutely, Sabrina. So just a couple of quick comments about this notion. First of all, that there's, there's a spectrum of, of diets that are plant predominant. I did a paper on request for the annual review of public health in, in 2014. The editors asked me, can we say what diet is best for health? That was the title they gave me and then I had to answer that question. And after extensively reviewing the literature and, and working with a colleague to write this, this paper, my conclusion was yes and no. If we mean the general theme of eating that's best for homo sapien health, because after all, we are a kind of animal, we tend to forget that, right? All animals have a native diet. We're really no different. There's a diet that's right for our kind of animal. There are so, so many jokes there. <laughs> Feel free to go ahead and make them. I'm just saying, but my brain's true. whirling. Yeah, good. I bet it is. But, you know, it's a unique homo sapien arrogance to think that, you know, there's so much debate about the best diet for us. And yet, you know, every kind of animal, we're quite confident they should eat what they're adapted to eat. We're the same. So the basic theme is a diet of real food, whole food, minimally processed, mostly plants. That's perfectly clear. But then, you know, is there any one variant on that theme that's been proven the best? No, not really. And there are lots of sources of evidence here, Sabrina, but I want to say three things quickly. First, the Blue Zones, the work of uh, our friend Dan Butner at National Geographic, show us those populations around the world that live the longest, have the least chronic disease, enjoy the most vitality. And although their diets vary widely in macronutrient levels and in many attributes, they are all real food, plant food predominant. Ikaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, the five Blue Zones, all share that theme. We also know this diet is most consistently associated with improvements in cognitive function, defense against cancer, defense against obesity, and then two other critical lenses. First of all, in 2020, I don't think you can be a health professional if you don't advocate frequently and fiercely for the health of the planet. There are no healthy people on a ruined, uninhabitable planet. And the evidence that plant predominant eating is better for the planet is absolutely off the charts, no debate. Uh, there are many good sources on that topic. I, I recommend the Eat Lancet Commission report is probably the best of the bunch. And then finally, uh, you may see just behind me here, one of my dearest friends in the world on the chair, that's Barley, uh, my golden doodle. Uh, <laughs> great but, you know, great I, name. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the <laughs> that took me a sec, but thank you. <laughs> be it dogs or, or my horse or you know, we, we've got friends that are, that are members of other species, and there's no question that plant-based eating is kinder and gentler to our fellow creatures. You look through those three lenses, better for human health, longevity and vitality, the stuff that matters most, years in life, life in years, 
vastly better for the planet and we all need one and kinder and gentler to our fellow creatures. That's the trifecta right there. Okay. You, you said Loma Linda. Yeah. Loma Linda, California over Malibu. Why Loma Linda? I mean, that to me, like everywhere else you said made total sense sense to me. But Loma Linda, it's like, Loma Linda is somewhere you drive through going to Palm Springs. It's the center of a, a, a religion and, you know, essentially a, a culture, the Seventh-day Adventists. And Seventh-day Adventists recommend a plant-predominant dietary pattern. They recommend against tobacco, excess alcohol. Uh, they engage, they have a strong sense of community. So they're, they're basically a set of properties that characterize the world's blue zones. I, I refer to them as feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. Dan Butner calls them by other names, but same basic idea. Physical activity on a daily basis, that's feet. Healthy dietary patterns that are plant predominant and based in real food, that's forks. They don't tend to smoke, that's fingers. They also don't tend to drink excessively, although the Icarians and Sardinians push the envelope a little bit. They get enough sleep, they don't get too much stress and love. They have a strong sense of community. Those same attributes are very salient among Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California. So we have one blue zone here in the United States. Interesting. Interesting. Right. I was just thinking about all the ones I drink, <laughs> I have stress, <laughs> I don't yeah. sleep. Yeah. Well, I, listen, sister, I got to, I, I, these days I, my stress is pretty hard to manage too, right? We're living through some crazy times. Right. Now, Rip, did yeah. you always live this lifestyle? I mean, y- you were a firefighter, you were a triathlete, you were all these things, or you still are. I can't imagine that you were raised this way. Well, no, I, I wasn't. Uh, but but it's interesting. I got inspired to eat this way, uh, embrace this lifestyle because of my father and my father's work at the Cleveland Clinic going back to 1984, showing that that you can, people can just through simple a simple whole food, low fat, plant based diet, halt, prevent, and in many cases reverse their heart disease. And he's got the most profound before and after angiographic evidence to, to document this. Uh, he and Dr. Uh, Dean Ornish are, are really the pioneers in, uh, in showing this to be the case. But I, I was at the University of Texas at Austin going to school when my father Lock was doing Longhorns. this. Lock them Longhorns. Go, go Longhorns. But uh, <laughs> in 1984, when he started, I was at UT. So when I got out in 1986. Was, you, you know what they do with Longhorns? I mean, we're having this, we're, we're having this conversation that basically is saying less animal husbandry, but okay, moving on. <laughs> you know what they're for? No. Those longhorns. Yeah, people eat them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. I, I don't want to try that. Yeah, especially no, especially I, in Texas. Are, yeah, there so, are some steaks and hamburgers, but anyway. But other they, than that, other than that. Yes, okay, moving yes. on. Uh, thank you, so David. You, you got but, out but, of UT. But, you got out of UT. You got out of UT. But so I've been and I've and I've been eating, fueling myself this way, as a as a triathlete for ten years, as a world class triathlete, then as a professional firefighter for twelve years, and then now as a as a husband, as a father, as a very you know just active male and a healthy eating advocate. So for a combined total of 30, 33 years, I've been eating this way. So your dad's work, your father was, I'm assuming, a doctor and a researcher. My father was a surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. He's now the, the, actually the director of the Cardiovascular Disease Prevention and Reversal Program at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute. That's quite a mouthful. Yes. Um, 
And, uh, and he's, he's actually 87 now and uh, doing phenomenally well, bikes every day and, you know, epitomizes this lifestyle. Um, so but, you basically uh, started this in college. I started this actually right when I graduated from college because when I was at college, I was on the athletic training table with the football players and the baseball players, and it was not pretty what we were eating. Yeah. No, I, I, I bet. I, I know because my son is in trying to gain weight, and it's amazing what he consumes, uh, starting with we mix his protein powder with Ovaltine to really, okay. like, get that big, you know, big, sugar big rush. calorie and <laughs> sugar rush and calorie intake. Um, so I got to, uh, Dr. Katz, one of the things that struck me in your bio is lifestyle medicine. That feels very new agey. And I think people sometimes hear that and A, don't quite know what it means. And a lot of people, and I'm not talking about like New York, LA, you know, the, where these kinds of lifestyles are embraced, but in the flyover states, that feels very new agey. What does that mean? mean when you say lifestyle medicine? Yeah. You know, Melissa, in a sense it is. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine is only a little over a decade old. So it is a new movement and yet it's not. It's ancient. Hippocrates really was the father of lifestyle medicine. Let food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food. I mean, those were among the assertions made millennia ago. So there was a recognition you know, when, when medicine was first being developed as a profession at all, the earliest days, that the influence of lifestyle was profound. So Hippocrates got that many others since. But it, it sort of dropped out of modern medical practice. I, and yeah, I don't want this to be a detailed history lesson, but the modern medical training curriculum is predicated on something called the Flexner Report, which was issued in 1920. So it's exactly a century old. And it was the formalization of the study of histology, pathology, anatomy, you know, essentially a whole batch of ologies at a time when all we really needed to know about nutrition was biochemistry. You know, what we were just beginning to learn what specific nutrients didn't. And if we go back a century, the diet and lifestyle related problems were things like you know, beriberi and, and rickets. I mean, we, we were having problems with nutrient deficiencies we didn't yet have fast food. We didn't yet have drive-through. The car was relatively new. We didn't have epidemic obesity and on and on it went. So it is sort of new age, but it's a new age response to a new age world, right? We now have rampant obesity, rampant chronic disease related to diet. Diet has been recognized. Let's be clear about this. Diet has been recognized as the single leading predictor variable for all-cause mortality in the United States, full stop. It's the leading predictor. Your diet quality is more likely to determine premature death than anything else, even during the pandemic. And it can do it by any one of a number of pathways, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, dementia, or for that matter, acute infectious disease like COVID because diet quality plays an important role there. So that's just diet. There's also physical activity, there's stress, there's sleep, and more and more new age evidence shows us how important these are. So the issue then becomes, do we really want a healthcare system that is just waiting for disease to develop and treating it with drugs and surgery after the fact, when we know and have known for decades, we could prevent 80% or more of all premature death and all chronic disease by eating well, being physically active and avoiding toxins like tobacco. It just doesn't make any sense. So the American College of Lifestyle Medicine stepped into that gap 
and it has grown faster than any other professional college in the United States over the past decade and spawned sister organizations all around the world. It's a movement and it's a movement whose time has come. So yeah, a little new age, but if anything overdue and a reminder that at its origins, medicine really was about the primacy of lifestyle all the way back to Hippocrates. Which, which I find interesting. Um, I just had to have dental work done and the anesthesiologist was asking me about all these things and I told him the supplements I take. And he said, you know, you could hear the eye roll over the phone. And he's like, well, taking them makes you feel better. Go for it. And I was really surprised by that answer. By the attitude, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this has been a career-long focus of mine. I I have this on my desk. This is the third edition of a textbook I wrote, Nutrition and Clinical Practice. This is for physicians and healthcare professionals. It's sitting on my desk because we're currently wrapping up the fourth edition. So this, you know, this is decades of work. Uh, basically trying to get more attention to nutrition in medical education among physicians. There are many other health professionals who pay lots of attention to it, but we remain outliers in medicine, partly because physicians have been trained to do the easy thing and prescribe a drug. You know, basically there's a drug for every problem, prescribe it, refer you to a specialist. And, but there's another reason, uh, Melissa, why, why nutrition is neglected. And, and that's because where nutrition does the most to advance the human condition, where it adds the most years to lives and adds the most life to years. It's mediated not by clinics, but by cultures. If we go back to the blue zones, what you never hear from our friend Dan Butner is that, you know, when he visits the blue zones on behalf of National Geographic, everybody there tells him, yeah, our doctors are terrific. He never hears that. People in blue zones rarely go see the doctor. Their culture makes it normal to eat well. So I, I think our problem is the notion that everything about health should be addressed in a healthcare system that is really a disease care system. We need to think about embedding the promotion of health in our culture. And people like Rip really have devoted you know, their careers to helping us do just that. And I'm very thankful well, for that. Okay, but well, wait. Okay, so I need you to answer the question. Supplements good, supplements bad. So, so yeah, Melissa didn't specifically <laughs> asked that. So actually, if I may, and Rip, sorry, I, we'll turn things back to you in a second. Uh, so I, I, I left Yale in various roles there after many years to, to run my own company, Diet ID, where we've reinvented dietary assessment. And one of the things that, that we have recognized about the term supplement is that implies supplemental to blank. What's the blank? Mm-hmm. The nutrients you get from your diet, right? I mean, you can't have a supplement that isn't supplemental. So it's not a substitute for a healthy diet. It's a supplement to it. And I think the best way to answer that is, well, what nutrients are you getting from your food? We make it possible to know that in a minute. And if you are judiciously supplementing so that where you have gaps in your diet, you're filling those gaps, I think that's a good idea. And, and many Americans do have gaps in their diet. And if you're using select nutrients or other types of supplements to enhance your health in a specific way, a probiotic to fortify your microbiome, for example, omega-3s that you're not getting from eating fish routinely to balance your immune system response, vitamin D because you're not out in the sun all that much, B12 because you have a plant-exclusive diet and you're not getting lots of B12 in it, all of that makes perfectly good sense. So, So the answer, Sabrina, is it depends. If you take the right supplements, if they truly are supplemental to what you're getting from food, absolutely can be a good idea. Rip, it, it, it's interesting because it sounds like your family history is very rooted in, in, this, in this thought process, starting with obviously what you just shared about your father. 
but here's my, I always question this. It's fine for adults. And this comes from my very unscientific point of view, just what I've observed. My question is how healthy is it for kids in the sense of pre, especially prepubescent and because they're growing and their joints are still open and all these things. And obviously we've all been trained to think protein, protein, protein. I've known a few uh, athletes, you know, especially as little kids who were strictly vegetarians. They seem to have chronic injuries that would not heal. And my thought, especially with the girls with a lack of iron was, I, I know we're all saying it's bad to eat meat, but I always feel like that was one of the reasons they couldn't heal. That was one of the reasons that they had so many joint problems. Is there an age-related component? Like, it's great for your kids to start to do this in college or it is, or after they're done growing or something like that, or is that just my really ridiculous assumptions of just what I saw? Yeah, I think it's your ridiculous assumptions of what you saw. Cool. I agree, I agree, I agree awesome. with you, Rip. I agree yeah, with you, Rip. Yeah. I'm not an expert, but, but as she was saying that, I was like, hmm. No, mm -hmm. but but those are very reasonable assumptions to have. Absolutely. I mean, ha. I'll just I'll tell you that ha, Benjamin Sabrina, thank you. They're reasonable. Benjamin ha. J. Spock, J. Spock, who wrote Baby and <laughs> Baby and Child Care, which is the seventh most sold book in the history of the planet, in his latest edition before he passed away, wrote how a, uh, a plant-predominant diet is good for even children starting at the age of two and, and onwards. And just know that when you're eating, as, as David and I have been talking about, a whole food plant-based diet, the good news here is that you're getting all of your fats. You're getting all the protein you need. You, you can't fall short on your protein because like black beans are 22% protein. You have you, broccoli that's 35% protein. So we, as human beings, we only need about five to 10% of our calories coming from protein. So you can't blow it with protein. You can't blow it with fats. You can't blow it with carbohydrates. And then when it comes to fiber, which 97% of this country is deficient in because they're not consuming enough whole plant-based foods, it's why Probably the number one gastrointestinal distress in this country is constipation. Uh, that is resolved immediately. Um, but you can go down the, the, the litany of the list. And I have three children, 6, 11, and 13. They've been 100% plant-based their whole life. They've never had a piece of meat, chicken, fish, eggs, and they are supremely healthy. They are the, at the top of their class in every athletics in school. Uh, so I would, I would say that this actually is a much, it's a superior diet, like X, I would say 10 X to the standard American diet where we have children that are ADHD. We have children that are typically, you know, overweight, obese, uh, experiencing all kinds of health issues. Um, so anyway, I'll stop there, but yeah. I mean, and, this and, is a, this is a, uh, just not, not the case at all. Rip, if I, if I may, yeah, uh, just, <laughs> just to append quickly. So Melissa, you know, again, most of what we know about diet and human health comes from research, massive aggregation of all different kinds of research. I've spent my career doing it and contributing to it, but it, you know, it really is massive in the aggregate. 
But there is this other place it comes from, and I'm still waiting for those jokes of yours, by the way. And that is <laughs> adaptation, right? Koala bears need to eat eucalyptus leaves. I have a horse. My horse cannot eat meat. Uh, lions cannot eat grass, oats, and hay, right? So the kind of animal you are matters. So just by way of reminder, because that, you know, Rip's answer, that we, we, it's not just anecdotal. It's not just his family. It's not just a feeling. There are studies looking longitudinally at what are the health outcomes in vegetarians, what are the health outcomes in vegans. There are, after all, whole cultures where generation after generation is, is vegetarian or vegan. Much of India lives that way, and so we have a lot of evidence there. But there is another important consideration, just to get this out there. We are mammals, and during the first year of life in particular, rapid growth needs to be fueled by a concentrated source of nutrition, and there is one clear winner for all mammals, and we are no different, and that is breast milk. Breast milk from our mothers. That is the preferred source of nutrition in the first year of life. In some cultures, it can extend out to the, Rip mentioned two years, that would be the two-year window. That's a long time. Most Americans don't breastfeed that long, but certainly the first year, mothers should breastfeed if they can, and that is the preferred nutrition. So you could argue, even if you're going to be vegan for the rest of your life, you don't start out that way because, you know, you're basically, you are consuming milk. It's just not from another species. It's from your own mother. That's the best initial fuel. After that, the transition to plant-exclusive diets is fine. And, and there's a lot of evidence to back up the description you just got from Rip. Right. So, <laughs> there's, by the way, I had a horse that not only, oh, only ate – I rode show jumpers for years – that not only ate hay, obviously, and grain and this – but could only eat Timothy hay, not alfalfa <laughs> hay. So for anyone who owns a horse, well, you know okay, how okay. freaking expensive <laughs> Timothy yeah. is. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. ridiculous. I, I, I'm pleased to say uh, my horse Troubadour is not quite that fussy. But again, important, right? All animals are adapted to eat a particular kind of diet. And, and we should lay aside the arrogance that makes us think we're different from all the rest of the natural world. No, we, we, we're, we're like that too. It's just that we can enhance what we know from our adaptations with what we learn from modern science that, that makes us a little bit special, but not nearly as special as we tend to pretend. So if we're, if someone like myself is trying to do, and after Game Changers, my friend Beth and I really try to do like two days a week plant-based, but I'm going to get to how to, how to ease yourself into this. Every now and again, I can't lie, I want a steak. You know, how does that <laughs> rip you look horrified that I just <laughs> said that? <laughs> you just went completely white. <laughs> how do we adapt things like how do we live a generally whole food, plant-life diet? How, if we want to have a piece of meat or a chicken or something, can we? And what about eggs? Eggs are in pasta. Yeah. Eggs are in bread. Eggs are in, you know, so many things when we don't even realize it. And also... With milk, because I am one of the few Jews over the age of 40 that is not lactose intolerant, <laughs> so I still like a bite of ice cream. Yeah. How do, how do let, I adapt me, myself me, into Dave, this? David, let me, let me take the eggs and the milk, and then you can dive in with what you want. So listen, it, it's, it's super simple to avoid the eggs, and we like to say that there's only two things wrong with the egg, the yolk and the white. <laughs> the, the, the egg yolk is 212 milligrams of dietary cholesterol, which is the equivalent of two Burger King Whoppers with cheese. And then the egg white is a concentrated source of animal protein, 
that does a real number on our bodies. I like to refer to animal protein as being kind of clunky and, um, and, and, um, and inferior to the, to plant-based protein. The milk, you know, we, I think we've talked about this, but we're the only species on the planet that drink another species milk. And that, that milk is made specifically for a baby cow, not for, for human beings. And so you don't want to be doing cheese, yogurt, sour cream, milk, any of these iterations, because it basically has the same DNA as the steak that you love, Melissa, right? It's got the saturated fat and just out the, out the yin yang, like for example, one eight ounce glass of whole milk has the same amount of saturated fat as four and a half strips of bacon. So think of it as liquid meat. Think I'd rather have the bacon. I'm sure. A delicious BLT. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, he's this like, is, no, this, no, this is, no. He's like, hell no, Melissa. No. I, and Dr. Cass is laughing. He's <laughs> 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 laughing at me. But, and and cheese, cheese, Melissa and Sabrina is dairy crack. Okay, dairy so wait. Crack. Okay, wait, Rip. Wait, hold on. Time out. Time out. You're time making out. this yeah. sound miserable. Yeah. Oh, wait, oh, wait. Oh, no. Listen, yeah. all I want to say to you is, what do you say to your children when they've been at school with peanut butter and jelly and grilled cheese sandwiches? And what do you say to them that encourages them to know? Hey, you didn't miss out on life. This, this, there's some good things. Come over here and let me put some sprouts on this cracker for you. How, how do you work that out? <laughs> and, se- and second, I'm just saying. How, and second, following up on Sabrina's, how do yeah. you explain to them that nobody wants to, none of their friends want to stay for dinner at your house? No. <laughs> Actually, the line out the door is long, especially after game changers and forks over knives. They want to be, they want to be healthy. It's exactly what happened at Fire Station Two when I got these firefighters to embrace this lifestyle. Uh, when one of them had to leave, we literally had a stack of papers this high of people wanting to come in to that culture. So, you know, let's give people the benefit of the doubt that everybody's not wanting, wanting, you know, birthday cake and, and grilled cheeses, you know, you know, till the cows come home. Um, the but reality is the reality is, and you probably heard this quote, I can't remember who said it, but you know, nothing tastes as good as how being healthy and fit feels. No, the line um, is nothing. It, uh, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Is it skinny? Skinny feels. It was That's said good. by a model. Nothing tastes of as good course. as skinny yeah. feels. Of course. But I yeah. want to know, Rip. Do you yeah. cook? Do you cook? Absolutely, I cook. I love to cook. What's your all- What's your signature dish? It's the uh, the raise the roof the raise the roof sweet potato lasagna. Look at you. Mm, yeah. That sounds and like it, a Thanksgiving favorite. <laughs> it, it's Thanksgiving and Christmas. See? It, it absolutely is. Oh, Sabrina, but, you crack me up your but face. Sabrina. Like, that sounded like a throwdown from Sabrina. No. Really? What do you cook? <laughs> Sabrina and Melissa, here's the thing that, that David and I will tell you is that, you know, if you want that grilled cheese, right, and you want to go a little off the party line here with whole food plant-based, you can do the diet cheese. You can do the almond cheeses. Sure. And it's so similar. It's crazy. You can do the Beyond Meat burgers and the Impossible burgers that are, that, you know, you, you really can't tell the difference. But they so, have a lot of fat, someone told me, because I was all about no. the Impossible burger, and they're like, it's high in calories and sodium and all these different things. It is. It's a bit of a Frankenburger, no doubt about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's about mm-hmm. 60% fat, and it's mm-hmm. got about 600 milligrams of sodium per burger. Uh, but again, if you're looking for that stepping stone to get you mm-hmm. into more of a whole food plant-based, then mm-hmm. I think it's great, and it's a good, 
it's good to have as an entertainment value every now and then. And according to Ethan Brown, the CEO of, of Beyond Meat, 85% of the, the buyers of Beyond Meat are meat eaters that are experimenting with it. Yeah, you know, I get exactly what you're saying because yeah. like with this whole, you know, quarantine period, I've been trying to look for healthier um, alternatives. For instance, like I'll, I've been looking at almond flour versus, you know, the regular flour or coconut flour, trying to combine different components that might be a little healthier than, you know, what we've been raised on. So I, I'm I'm definitely into an, into exploring alternatives and uh, I actually think it's fun. I think it's exciting to be able to take those steps, you know, for a different lifestyle. Yeah. It, uh, so, Melissa, if I could just uh, append here. So you asked, you know, what if I occasionally want to eat meat? So I did patient care for 30 years. And I, I would say to you what I said to every one of my patients, you're the boss. It's your life. No one else can tell you what to do or should tell you what to do. But as a physician. Said just like, said just like a, a Jewish mother okay. it's your life it's your life but <laughs> as a physician it would be my job to tell you the implications of what you do make sure you're well informed right so right. again you know avoiding meat especially processed meat better for your health better for the planet better for our fellow creatures if you then say okay you know I, i'd like to do that um but i have a taste for meat then i completely agree i think you know in essence these faux meats beyond impossible and all the others are you know you could potentially think of them as gateway drugs to plant-based eating, right? I mean, it's the next step. I mean, it, they are to meet what diet soda is for a soda drinker. Okay. Is it as good as water? No. Do you really want those chemicals? No. But is it better than all the sugar and the calories in the regular version? Probably yes. It's a stepping stone in the right direction. But the other thing I would throw into the mix, and because I, I think this is very important, and again, 30 years of clinical care to back this up, taste bud rehab. Taste buds are adaptable little fellas. When they can't be with the foods you thought you loved before, they learn to love the foods they're with. And it doesn't take very long. So for example, Rip doesn't miss meat. His kids don't miss meat. I've raised five kids to adulthood. They don't miss meat. I don't miss meat. I haven't had it in 40 years. You know, I, I did have it as a kid. Uh, and then I renounced it uh, as a tween or a teen and never looked back. But at this point, all, you know, these years later, it doesn't register as food. You know, I, I have no taste for it, no craving mm -hmm. for it. Don't want it, would never even think about it. But it, you know, if you're used to eating it, you like it because familiarity is one of the more consistent determinants of dietary preference. Taste buds learn to love the foods they're with. Comfort so in other food. Words, yeah, so mm -hmm. in other words, you know, basically in the early going, if you can be plant exclusive, some of the time, that's better than none of the time. If you can get there much of the time, that's better. Uh, you know, my most recent book, How to Eat with Mark Bittman, um, what, what we basically talk about that you know, the balance between the culinary delight, the pleasure you get from food, the pleasure you get from health, the importance of attending to the needs of the planet. But Mark famously wrote about being vegan before six, right? The idea that, well, you know, let, let's start moving in the right direction Let's get breakfast, lunch, snacking. Let's, you know, that can all be vegan and then leave a little room in your diet for if you want fish at night or poultry at night or high quality meat. So again, I don't know that everybody is going to do this in one fell swoop. You know, Rip is used to it. I'm used to it. Our families are used to it. And, and you know, we don't need to assume that everybody can just be there. And, it, you know, if, if you are eating plant predominant, that's great. Good for you. And I think the more you do that and the more you get used to that, the less 
meat will lose its allure. And, you know, I think we'd like to see everybody moving in that direction. The, the last thing I'll say is it sort of depends on why you're doing this, right? There really are three motivations. Yes, it's better for you, but we all need this planet, this beautiful gem of a planet that we are ruining, and it's much better for the planet. And then there are wonderful creatures who aren't homo sapiens, like barley, <laughs> and many others. And, and, you know, the way we treat them matters, and our diets have a major implication on how we treat our fellow creatures. So you you brought up your dog again. Should our dogs be eating vegan? Because all dog food have meat. Yeah, I don't know. That's I mean, not true. No, yeah, Okay, most traditional dog food. But I, I don't. Yes. I don't. I honestly don't know the. I don't know the answer. So again, th- this is where we have to be careful, right? So, for example, there are obligate carnivores in nature. Lions must eat meat. There, there's no evidence that they can grow and thrive and be healthy if they don't. Um, dogs are not obligate carnivores the way that the felids, the cat family is, but their, their native diet is clearly far more meat predominant than people. Their teeth are designed differently than ours. And so again, I, I wouldn't presume to say, I, you know, I think, I think how we source uh, the food for our pets is important and we want to think about sustainability and so forth. But um, yeah, the I'm, issue I'm... Much debated. Uh, you know, how far can we go toward a you know plant exclusive diet for dogs? And uh, Rip, I have to say, you know, it's not a literature that that I know a lot about. Yeah. I, I don't know. One of my, one of the, one of the sponsors. Let me just chime in. One one of the sponsors of my podcast is Wild Earth Dog Food, and it's uh, an all plant based dog food, uh, and it's created by a uh, veterinarian who is supremely knowledgeable in this subject. And um, yes, it, it is perfect for dogs. Um, and the fa- he talks about it, he wrote a whole book, how 30% of the meat in this country actually goes to dogs. Um, and it's, it's kind of uh, ironic, David, that a lot of vegans, plant-based people are actually feeding their dogs meat because they don't know that they can be supremely healthy, even more so without the meat. Um, and our, for example, our dogs were coming down with cancer. We were feeding them the, the, the highest quality, you know, d- d- typical dog food. And then we started giving them all plant-based diet, you know, our scraps and then wild earth. And they're just like crushing it. But anyway. <laughs> so before I let you go, I guess this is more of a, you know, I'm going to take advantage of you while you're here. How do do I start? Because it seems very overwhelming to go cold turkey. What you know? Cold kale. H- cold, how kale. To, cold kale. Cold kale. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Cold kale. Um, cold yeah. kale. Okay. Yeah. All how right. how do I start? Like you know, tomorrow night I'm going out for Italian food. You know, normally if I was trying to be good about pasta, I would have like a chicken paillard. How do, how does one even begin? David, you want to start? You want? To- uh, yeah, I'll start. <laughs> I, I, I've sort of devoted my my career to this, and and then Rip, you, you can you can add to it. Um, I, I think you do start with wanting to start. There's no question that motivation or willpower matters. And then you need some skill power, right? So you need to know what to look for on that menu. If you're really interested in moving to a more plant-based diet, you know, first of all, why? What are your reasons? Is it health? Is it the planet? Is it kindness and, and gentleness to our fellow creatures? Is it all of the above? So your motivations matter. 
Then the ability to identify what's right on a given menu, that's a skill. The ability to shop for the ingredients, that's a skill. The ability to make recipes like Rip's lasagna, or um, my wife is, that does most of the cooking here. I do some, but uh, she's French, brilliant cook. Uh, and all those recipes are freely available to the world at Quizinicity.com. So knowing recipes that are easy and family friendly that you love, where you can love the food that loves you back, all of that is skill power. We don't talk nearly enough about skill power. You can also make use of all sorts of various digital help, uh, particularly these days, we're doing so much online. So it just uh, a plug, if you will, for my company, Diet ID, we've invented a way where you can find out what is your current diet, its composition, its type, its quality, your nutrient intake level in a minute. And then you can juxtapose that with, okay, so aspirationally, I'd like a high quality Mediterranean diet or flexitarian diet or vegetarian or vegan diet. What are, what are the exact differences? And show me that down to the level of different foods. So this is designed to show you where you are, where you want to go, and then navigate you step by step. And, and I, I completely agree with the point you're making, Melissa, that you, you may not be willing to just you know, go from wherever you are now to a plant-exclusive diet you know, this evening. You may want to start moving in that direction, moving in that direction when you eat out, moving in that direction when you prepare food at home. So I think there, there are a lot of tools that can help you do exactly that. Diet ID is one. There are many others. But I think some clarity on where am I now? Where do I want to go? What are the differences? And, and where am I willing to start making changes? And then the, the really good news here, the changes are self-reinforcing. You know, as I said before, taste bud rehab, your taste buds will come along for the ride. Part of the reason you like what you like is because you're used to it. And if you get used to eating better and better, you will like it. And, and in fact, you'll like it more. And, and this has been studied many times where people actually develop aversions to highly processed food they used to love as they switch to more whole foods, as they switch to foods more direct from nature, everything highly processed starts to taste highly processed. You know, I mean, the notion that junk can be food and food can be junk is an anomaly of American culture. When you step outside of that, junk starts to taste like junk and nobody wants to eat anything that tastes like junk. So Rip, you know, what, do I, what do I do tomorrow yeah. night? What do I do? So, let, can, let, me, let me start because I, I think that it, it shouldn't be that overwhelming. I want you to know, let's just break it down a little bit. Most Americans rotate through maybe one, maybe two breakfasts. Okay, that's it. Lunches, two or three lunches typically, especially during the, the, the work week. And then when it comes to dinners, typically the average American family rotates around six to seven different dinners their whole entire lives. There is absolutely almost zero variety in the American diet. So you just make some really smart, simple plant-strong substitutions. So you do pasta night and you do a pasta primavera. You do a pizza night and you leave off the cheese. You do a whole grain crust and you put on all the wonderful toppings that you like, you know, beans, pineapples, jalapenos, mushrooms, onions. You can make burgers, right, out of black beans and brown rice that are super simple. I mean, David talked about skill sets and there's some skill set here, but oatmeal, is so simple. It's so easy. You know, there's commercialized versions of really healthy cereals like my Rips Big Bowl cereal. That's uh, super simple. And then you for lunch, I love sweet potatoes, any kind of potato with uh, little steamed greens and then some sort of beans, whether it's uh, black beans, white beans, pinto beans, there's lentils, there's hundreds of varieties of beans, lentils, peas out there. And then, uh, and, and then dinners, like I said, so for you, um, 
Your question tomorrow night, it, it, well, at the Italian restaurant, yeah. rep, I'm going to jump yeah. in. So ask if they have whole grain pasta. Yeah. I would do that. And then pasta fajoule would be great. It's a traditional dish, right? Whole grain pasta and beans. I mean, because she's not going to cook at the restaurant. But yeah, I mean, that's if I, I don't cook to, anyway. Yeah, she doesn't. I, I would ask, you know, do you have any whole grain pasta? Ideally, they will. They may say no, but it's worth asking. Um, and, and by the way, Rip, I imagine you feel the same way. If you get used to eating whole grain pasta, regular pasta tastes bland. I, I really like it a lot less. Whole grain mm -hmm. pasta tastes like pasta to me, and, and refined grain pasta tastes like nothing. Is that like yeah. the same as the brown rice pasta? I think, I, well, it, it's, it's made, pasta traditionally is made from wheat, but I would argue the same is true of rice. If you get used to brown rice, which is much mm -hmm. more flavorful than white rice, you'll like it better and there's no going back. But, you know, there are traditional Italian dishes that, that are plant exclusive where you get, you know, beans and, and a great sauce over whole grain pasta or pasta primavera. So that, there should be some good options for you there. We got Melissa and I will definitely do the taste bud rehab together. <laughs> yeah, Excellent. we we will, we will. And I think, but but I th I think it's you want like we have a seven day program, we have a twenty eight day program. Like plug in and then commit for like seven days, two weeks, or something like that. So as David said, you can have that taste bud rehab. You can take back your palate that's been hijacked you know, by, by big food for however many years. And then you, when you do it, here's the thing, you know, and I, I struggle with the all or nothing or all or something, because to me, when you go all in, that's when you get the benefits. Like, you know, the biochemistry improves, your taste buds improve, you lose the weight, you feel good, you're sleeping great. So that's why I like people to say, listen, do it and commit to it. And then after the end of that seven days or two weeks or 28 days, then you decide how, all in you want to be but i think like you owe it to yourself to like give it a give it a chance well you have challenged melissa and i for the next seven days game on yeah <laughs> we'll see i can't commit i can't i have a, i'm going to an italian restaurant tomorrow night <laughs> oh Guys, this my is, goodness melissa we, we need, we're better we need your report back what you choose I, from this has been absolutely fascinating i really want to continue this conversation so uh, hold a space on both your calendars for Sabrina and I to come and revisit you. Part two. Excellent. Thank Very you. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you.